Okay. Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live, August 21st, 2015. Today we have a quote. Robin, you want to read our quote? Sure. These five things characterize the good person's gift. What five? One gives with reverence, one gives thoughtfully, one gives with one's own hand, one gives things that are good, and one gives thinking of the result. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, which doesn't say much more than what we have here. It's actually, the, the entire sutta is first telling five kinds of dana that are asapurisadam, asapurisadanani. So we have types of dana that are Sapurisa Danani and before this before that he talks about dana that is asapurisa dana. Dana means a gift. Sapurisa Sapurisa is a, something like gentleman or a good fellow. Sa is good, purisa is man or, or person. So there are those kinds of gifts that are those people who are are sophisticated, are are somehow proper people, and then there are the gifts of those who are those people who are not cultured, sophisticated, who who don't act properly. So this is an, a case as opposed to I think yesterday's which um, was simply, you know, sometimes I mentioned that the Buddha simply gives different kinds of people, right? The four kinds of people, was that yesterday or whenever it was? Uh, and doesn't say which one is better, but here we have a clear indication that one is better than the other. You know, two types of dana. The dana of a sapurisa is, it's clear from the language that if it's of a sapurisa, that means it's a better than the something of a asapurisa, a person who is uneducated or uncivilized or um, not a gentle gentleman or not a good fellow, that kind of thing. So here he translated it as good person, which is fine. So this is um, interesting. People often don't realize how much the Buddha actually taught about giving. Uh, at least in the West, I think that's common. It's a common criticism leveled against Western Buddhists, um, especially by those who are, well, by those generally who are familiar with Eastern Buddhism, wherein one might argue that too much emphasis is placed on giving. where it's all about giving and it becomes less giving and more I mean it for Westerners it often feels like an obsession with um, 
rewards the rewards of a, of, of a good deed so the emphasis is on what the giver gets out of it <coughs> which as we see is actually a part it's actually a good thing and that's something very much worth exploring and under, trying to understand but um, in general the idea of giving is something the Buddha talked much about charity is considered to be a spiritual practice it's considered to be a wholesome thing it's considered to be beneficial towards one's own practice and i think more important more directly and maybe more often it's the understanding that it's supportive of the organization of the practice so it, it may not be the case or it certainly isn't it, you couldn't say that it's the case that dana is necessary and generosity is a necessary practice you know, obviously a person who is stingy who is who is uh, jealous and, and miserly is not going to progress very far on the practice because of the, the intense greed associated with that but one need not go out of one's way to to give necessarily um, for one's own practice but for the continuation of the organization of the practice you could say the religion it's essential generosity is essential and in in two levels at least um, not just in supporting a teacher for example but in spreading the dhamma you know generosity in the teachings if the teachings themselves wouldn't spread if there was not the generosity of all of us to give to share to promote to uh, be thoughtful thinking of the next generation thinking of those people who can benefit from it if that didn't enter our mind there wasn't this sort of generosity then it wouldn't progress and of course if there was not support for people to practice or teach and to organize there wasn't material support um, and active um, what you call I don't know what the word is but um, what do you call support that's not physical there's, phys there's material support and then there's not emotional support exactly but uh, another, another kind of physical support like act, act action acting to support working to support building monasteries and so on like the monastery here and the people from the cambodian community have selflessly you know, given up their time and you know time that would would have to be normally bought in order to finish the project people did this for free who gave up their skilled labor for free to 
build the uh, well, there's a open hall at the back there and there's a now they've built a porch around the entire building and shingled it and now they're making it look they're putting up these nice pillars and painting them giving up their saturday and sundays they're, they're giving up their free time which is remarkable and awesome there's these kind of things that support the religion but you don't have to think of it as religious no, it's the organization so we have an organization which I think we're going to probably have to talk a little bit about tonight because we've got an announcement. Maybe I just jump right in. No? Today, let's give an example of how charity and organizations, well, it's not not entirely about charity and organizations, but it um, probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's a part of it, which is why it, I make the connection in my mind. So first of all, here's the scope. We're trying to, keeping with the theme of dana, we're trying to spread the teachings. And so that's really mostly what this move to, to Western Hamilton is all about. And so we had this plan that in January we would, our, our organization would rent a house and it would ideally have rooms and maybe even an outbuilding to allow me to stay there while at the same time accommodating both male and female meditators. And it would serve as a sort of uh, base for teachings uh, at or in a, related to um the McMaster University. So there's a Buddhism association that's up and coming and we'll be able to maybe connect that. But moreover, just being a resource for McMaster students and that area where there isn't really a Buddhist monastery, the West End of Hamilton doesn't really have anything that I know of. And so um, just got, I got to thinking that well we got an incredible amount of support for the project um there was a a uh, outreach to see about support and to solicit support which has been ongoing uh maybe robin can just quickly can comment on that how well is it going it's going well we started uh less than two weeks ago and we're we're almost at two-thirds of the goal in less than two weeks. So that's really great. That's that's nice to see. It's great to see that kind of support, which our goal was 6,000. So we're nearly at 4,000, nearly at two-thirds of the $6,000 goal. So I proposed, um, I had this sort of the idea that January might be well, I think we all know it's there are some down negative aspects to choosing January first of all the delay it means we have to wait another four months to get going um, the fact that 
most of the rentals around the university are probably the good ones are probably up now in fact we've probably missed our chance to get the good ones and best bet would be to wait till next summer uh, but that there found there happened to be at least one property that looked quite uh, interesting and I got a so I contacted this one the owner of one property and got a response back to, from them and went to see it today and I've just put a link to a YouTube video showing the property it's unlisted so you're the first people besides the very very inner circle to have seen this video and there you are sneak preview of what may be and so we are just now trying to answer the question tonight it's our big announcement whether we will go ahead and rent uh, the organization will will rent a house this house starting sometime in september i'm not sure september 1st but close to september 1st i would think which means we'll be moving there very shortly hmm. this is probably a big deal considering <laughs> no there's not much but there's a bunch of stuff in this room all this computer has to go but pack it all up and we'd be moving just in time for the September school year which means when we have our first meeting of the McMaster Buddhism Association we'll be able to provide this resource So this um, you know, this this particular subject today, it's something that makes us makes me and I'm sure all of us involved think of this project and uh, understand how important the our our support our individual and, and organized accumulated organ uh, what do you call joint support for our organization how important it is anyway so that's our um that's the organ that's the announcement was there anything else to announce we're, we're just getting ready hopefully tonight my my thought is maybe tonight we can come to a decision and by the next week we'll be signing a rental agreement if I can just say something, um, you know, of course, it's going to be a great resource for the people in the Hamilton area. But I mean, you wouldn't object if people from anywhere came to do a residential course. Is that correct? Absolutely not. I mean, I don't, but I don't object to that here. Internationally, it doesn't make as much difference um, if I'm here or if I'm in uh, West Hamilton, because here we have rooms as well. A bigger difference is probably the level of organization and autonomy that we'll have. Um, so it's more, you could say it's more to our benefit to have the place. 
but yeah. you know the, the, that just leads to the benefit of everyone because by our benefit i mean our ability to organize our ability to grow to advertise to 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 be in a, a resource it's going to be increased to 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 create a, our own community will be it, it'll be a whole night and day i mean here i have no commu local community the local community here is the cambodian people who are great and and wonderful but not one of them has ever come up to me and expressed interest in practicing meditation so not really my community and that's kind of what i'm getting at your your community is spread out throughout the world really but you know groups together in in sessions like this and this is a resource for us as well i mean it's not not just for the locals it's uh, definitely available for people who want to travel and go take a course absolutely and it and it should mean to figure out what's which part of the house probably i'm thinking maybe the upstairs would be a good place for a studio place to put this control center i don't know and yeah, there'd be a space where the camera could be set up and everything could be set up and we could have talks. On the other hand, we could also just use the living room, but there'll be an audience. I mean, I'm pretty sure, um, my own schedule permitting, that there will be more opportunity to do recording, more so than just this. Maybe on the weekends, every weekend, we could have a day course every Saturday. I would have to come back here. Um, the one catch to this all, and we're kind of off track, I do want to get back to talk about the Dhamma because we didn't really actually get to the five characteristics, which is our Dhamma for today. But uh, just one final note, I guess, is uh, that the one catch to this all is this change is that I'm still bound to be in one place for three months until the end of October. So technically, it's the rains. And the rains, the three months, because it would have been raining and for other reasons as well, um, staying put for three months was considered to be um, an important tradition. There are exceptions. I think the one I'm going to use or abuse perhaps here is the teaching one. It's not really abusing because, well, the idea is that I've been invited to get be involved with the McMaster Buddhism Association. And to do that effectively, um, it's much more effective if I am local. So if I have to go back to Stony Creek every night, um, it, it limits the ability to be involved in evening programs, for example. So uh, I'm allowed to be away for up to six nights, but then I have to come back here. So the idea is to spend the weekdays there until the end of October and still come back here on the weekends. So there'll be two months of that. It's going to be a little bit complicated, but I think it's worth it, especially with this property, which happens to be quite quite well priced. They're they're asking for sixteen hundred 
excuse me, $1,600 a month Canadian, which I think we've agreed, the board has agreed, is reasonable. More than reasonable, I guess. And feasible, more importantly. And so we're going to go for one year, please. Right? It's also for sale for $500,000. Okay. So by, by chance, if anyone wants to... Uh purchase it well it's funny well. because sixteen hundred dollars is i think fairly cheap and uh for a house and five hundred thousand dollars i think is fairly expensive so it's an interesting situation to have a house that is low rent low low price rent but high price uh, to buy the head monk who drove me there and uh, who i talked with afterwards i said what do you think about buying it? And he said, oh, that, that's a piece of garbage, he said. <laughs> he was totally, totally said, for $500,000, you could get, he said, for $200,000, you could get a nice house. But um, it's not really true. If you know that, if you look at the location, I mean, that's right. It's a prime piece of real estate, really, from a commercial point of view, because, oh, yes, it's it's commercially zoned. And it's, right at the end of of a strip of the commercial strip um you know if you look if you see that street that's king street which you know it's king street it's a big street so it's um maybe not entirely what we're looking for but if we ever did build a monastery there it would be so it would, there would be no need to rezone it i think i mean maybe minor rezoning or, or something but commercial zoning means we could start, we could call it a meditation center business, right? I mean, the point is, you'd have no one complaining, there'd be no problem with advertising, putting a big sign up front, meditation center. Doesn't mean we charge money for it. But anyway, 500,000, I think is a pipe dream. My teacher, um, I remember they were building a, a five story meditation hall out in the rice field. It was a five story hotel basically i'm not exactly a hotel but you know really somewhat mind-blowing mind-boggling especially at the time when uh, the current facilities were nowhere on that scale and so his secretary had this big idea and was was pushing these plans and he was showing pictures and everything and ajahan said this is our dream or, or he said it's a dream in thai he said yeah this is a a dream and he kind of laughed at it. But in the end, the impressive thing is they managed to build it and uh, spend lots and lots of money, but out in the middle of a rice field, basically. They've turned a rice field into a incredible meditation center. I mean, I, mean, I think that's fairly common in Thailand. It's not, it's, it's special, but it happens more often than not. And that or more often than, than one would think, and it points to the incredible um, ability of Asian Eastern Buddhist cultures to, especially Thai culture, to organize charity and people's selflessness, selflessness in giving. I, and I don't know that it's actually selflessness, and this is where we get into the actual qualities here. The most interesting one here is the fifth quality, 
and in, it's in relation to selflessness. Um, but first, okay, so we have giving with reverence. When you are charitable, giving with doing it respectfully is considered to be important. If you give condescending or looking you know, looking down upon the person who you're giving to, it's not really proper giving. If you give to a beggar but you pity them, uh, if you give something out of pity, it's not as great as if you respect the person as a, as a person, no matter who they are, and you do it respectfully. Giving thoughtfully means with consideration. Oh, there's a good commentary to all of this. I can get some good... Um, Right. The second one is jitikatwa, whatever that means. It means having made in the mind. Jitikarang, no? I've never heard this jitikara. It's interesting. Jitikarang upadapetwa, upadapetwa. Yeah, it means... Right, giving, having um, brought to mind, having brought one's mind to consider, having given thought to uh, what is appropriate to give and who it is appropriate to give to, who deserves to be given to. So giving where it's deserved, these are the two, quali two important qualities that one is considered to be thoughtful. If one... So it's not thoughtful as we think of it in the West. It means having given it some thought. So considered, maybe. Um, considering carefully. Considering what is appropriate to give. Yeah, that's thoughtful, right? Oh, you're, how thoughtful of you when you give a gift that is meaningful and purposeful and useful. And more important, or equally important, giving to someone who deserves it. So not just giving to people because you like them, you know, because you're partial towards a person, giving to your children, giving to your spouse, giving to your, I suppose giving to your parents would be another category, but, but giving to your children clearly is not exactly charity. Um, there is charity involved very much so, but it's not the same sort of charity as giving um, because the person deserves it except in the sense that your children deserve your support because you are responsible for bringing them into the world so it's your duty to support them but not the same as you would give to someone who you respect to your parents to your teachers etc to your people who the people who you you support like political figures i think there's something to be said for the wholesomeness of supporting a political campaign, potentially. I mean, if the political campaign is someone who is working, like a, you could say supporting a king would be the equivalent in the Buddhist time. So, so today supporting a political party, if the political party is worthy of supporting, I would argue that political parties can be forces of good, potentially. I think there's an argument to be made there. So supporting a political party could be potentially supporting someone who is uh, a good person, who is working for the benefit of other people, so worthy of respect, worthy of gifts. 
which is interesting because you wouldn't think a political contribution to be a, a wholesome thing. You know, it's not, I don't, th I mean, I don't, I've never, never given political contributions myself, but I think it certainly could be a wholesome thing. It could also be a very unwholesome thing if you're supporting the wrong party. Or what usually means if you're supporting any party, because most of them are usually crooked from what I hear. Number three, gives with one's own hand. Sahata hmm. deity. What's the uh, opposite? The opposite of sahata um, with one's own hand. Oh yeah, asahata. This is not in the commentary. So giving with one's own hand, there's a story in, in this regard about a man who didn't do this, a very rich man, maybe a prince or a king, I can't remember, in the Payasi Sutta, I think, of the Diga Nikaya. And so it's interesting, Payasi was a skeptic. Let's look this up. Yeah, number whatever it is, 23. So who was... Payasi Raja. Yeah, Payasi was a king. No, Rajanyo. Was he a king? chieftain, a rajanya, not a raja, but a rajanya, one, something like of the king. It's a, a lesser king, so a chieftain of Setavya, so Setavya, uh, lived on a royal domain gifted by Pasenadi. That's what the DPPN says. Anyway, at the end of this sutta, so the Payasi Sutta is an, an, an awesome sutta to read because it's, a, it's called the, the translation in English or the title in English, I think, by Maurice Walsh, is Debate with a Skeptic. Let's see if I have the English translation here. He calls it, uh, yeah, in parentheses, he says Debate with a Skeptic. And it goes through all sorts of reasons. It's not actually about the Buddha. It's about Kumara Kasapa, who has a debate with Payasi. I think at the end... Uh, someone goes to the Buddha and tells the Buddha about it. Yeah, at the end there's stuff about it. He goes to, in the end, Payasi, it looks like, goes to the Buddha anyway. The point being, Payasi later passes away, and but later on Payasi becomes a, a devoter, a devoter, a devotee of the Buddha and a donor to the Buddha, supporter of the Buddha. And it says, right, not just the Buddha, but Prince Payasi established a charity for ascetics and Brahmins, wayfarers, beggars, and the needy. And he gave it all out. But...
But he gave right. But he he gave uh, he gave stuff that wasn't worth giving. So he he got his servant Uttara to give the food out to give out food and and charity. But what he gave out was broken rice and sour gruel. And uh, Uttara complains to him and says that. This isn't something that Bayasi himself would touch with a uh, touch with his foot, let alone eat. And he gave giving rough clothes with ball fringes, I guess these little pilling, I guess we call it. So it means the coarse weave that uh, he says you wouldn't you wouldn't care to set your foot on as a mat, much less wear them. And he said. You are kind and gentle, Lord. How can we reconcile this with you giving such coarse offerings? And so Payasi said very well and gave and said, Arrange as you think fit. Arrange as I would eat and as I would wear. So as a result of his push, the, the push by Uttara, he uh, gave you a whole uh, proper... Um, worthy gifts but he still didn't do it with himself and so the the sutta says whoever put the suttas together relates to us that Prince Payasi because he had established his charity grudgingly not with his own hands means Uttara was the one who actually ended up distributing giving out these gifts not just to Buddhists he wasn't just giving to Buddhists he was giving to anyone who needed giving out to all kinds of Brahmins and wayfarers, beggars, and the needy. But he did it um, grudgingly and not with his own hands. His asahata is our important qual uh, quality here. As a result, he was reborn as an angel in the realm of the four kings, which is... If you know the four kings, it's in Chinese mythology, it's the four directions. Um, it's where they got, they, where the Chinese folklore got, folk mythology got it. They got it from Buddhist Buddhism, the four great kings of the four directions. It's the lowest of the uh, angel realms. Uttara, his servant, because he had given charity ungrudgingly with it with his own hands and with proper concern not as something to be tossed aside was reborn after death at the breaking up of the body in the company of the 33 gods as a higher angel and one of the monks found this out one of the monks who had magical powers was resting in heaven so he went into the jhanas and went for a rest up to up into up in heaven and saw this and he thought it was remarkable and so venerable is Gawampati is the monk and when he returned to earth he said you should give ungrudgingly with your own hands none of this is about the Buddha it's interesting because this is one place where people might be suspicious that this is a later edition because it doesn't ever I think 
uh, I was wrong. It doesn't ever bring up the Buddha. There's nothing in here, actually. But anyway, the point being that this is in line with the teachings given here in the Anguttara Nikaya, that the best kind of gift is one that gives with, one gives not only with one's own hand, but respectfully with due consideration. Giving with one own, one's own hand, number four, is giving things that are good. This is important if you give things that are useless to you. Like if you give something away because it's of no use to you anymore, not especially considered generosity. I mean, um, meaning you have something already. You don't go out of your way to procure it, but really it's useless to you, right? You have, uh, suppose you have a telephone and then you get a new telephone and you give your old telephone away, your old mobile phone away to someone else as a gift. Not really um, a true gift or, you know, not as, not as powerful a gift. Not really to be, not something you should consider as a great gift of great fruit. If, on the other hand, you, someone you know needs something and you buy it specifically for them, you could still say, well, I don't, this isn't something I need. But you have sacrificed the money, or the, you know, the, the effort to procure the item is uh, still fully qualifies as something that is good. And of course, obviously, if you give away something that is rubbish, that is garbage, that is broken, still beneficial, still still considered a gift, but not exactly a sapurisa, what we call sapurisadana, a gift of a of a cultured individual, a good fellow, a good person. I mean, literally. Number five is the interesting one that I think we often surprises us as Buddhists, where we think. Buddhism is about selflessness, and therefore you should give selflessly, give without expecting any result. That's not exactly the case. Uh, it seems quite clear that one should be, as is said here and, and explicitly stated, one should be thinking of the result. The commentary makes it quite clear. Let's see if we've lost the commentary now. Mm. Right. Um... Agamana, agamana means what will come, seeing what will come. I think that's literally what it means. Agamana, the the result. Ditika means one who believes in the result, one who sees the result. With a belief, you could literally translate it in one way with a belief in the in the efficacy of or the you know the um, utility of the gift, and the utility of the gift actually is more in reference to one's own benefit. I, I think there's an argument to be made here, and because it doesn't mention the utility of the gift for the other person, and I think you could take that into account when you give something if it's of no use to the person. If you give a uh, luxury car or a, a jet to a Buddhist monk, for example, uh, if you give a bicycle to a fish, 
not useful. Uh, but the real utility here is actually referring to one's own utility. And the commentary makes this clear. One thinks anagata bhavasa pachayo bhavisati. This will be for the uh, this will be a, a, a support for uh, some future state. Kamancha vipakancha sadahitva dehiti. One gives believing in karma and its result, its fruit. And so on a, on a worldly level, this is important and by extension on a dharmic level good karma is important for the practice i mean a person who has good karma theoretically should be able to practice easier than a person who has bad karma karma can get in your way it's considered to be a mara of sorts it blocks you it can block you in your practice if you're too busy scrambling to feed yourself and clothe yourself if you don't have good karma so a person who has done good things in the past it's a support it's a support in terms of being physically born in a place that in a state that is with plenty but more moreover with people who respect you who think of you as a good person who support you uh, who are kind to you who are helpful to you respect and, and so on and they do this because of the goodness of what you have cultivated. A person who is generous is much more likely to receive support and help and friendship and guidance and all these things. People are much more likely to take them seriously and, and wish to help them. So, yeah, there is this great benefit to giving, for example, and this is important. A, a, a person should be thinking of this when they give. Giving and saying, you know, whatever I'm giving without any thought to cause an effect isn't a Buddhist thing to do because it, it ignores the nature of reality. It ignores the whole purpose of being of goodness. Goodness is for a purpose. We cultivate and the buddhism builds this artificial you could say artificial structure of goodness in order to um, attain something in order to achieve something and that is enlightenment so there is all of our practice is about cultivating this artificial state of goodness that is going to allow us like building a rocket ship to the moon you have to build the structure so you can take off naturally it's very hard to get to the moon but once you build the structure, the laws of nature do allow for it. It just takes a lot of work. And generosity, kindness, charity, this is an important part of the structure. Not, not the most important, but it's a useful. It, it provides power, it provides energy, it provides encouragement. So seeing this is important. And the Buddha gave an interesting commentary once on the various types of, of results one can expect. If, for example, one gives thinking people in the past have given, wise people give, that kind of thing, then one is born in a certain realm. And each realm uh, of, of the heavens is actually associated with a different type of giving. 
again, my exact knowledge of the suttas, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya somewhere, can't off the top of my head remember which sutta, but I think it's in several places, or this kind of talk is given in several places. And finally, I do know this sutta, but I can never remember which one it is. Um, finally, the best way to give is thinking this will be a support for my mind. If you want to know the best and, and highest reason for giving, just a second, I'm going to do a search here and get you the sutta number. I'm sure there are people out there wiser than me who can, not more knowledgeable than me who can give this. No. Mm -hmm. It's a waste of my time to make you sit there. I haven't taken any questions today, you'll notice. Are there any questions waiting? I have a question on the third part of the uh, the five aspects there. Giving with your own hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, today, you know, we obviously, we have a lot of things that would distance us, you know, electronic payments and subscription payments and things that where you can be kind of far removed. You know, you might set up a, a regular donation, but then it comes out automatically out of your paycheck, for example. And how do you, how would that fit in with giving with your own hand? It's a good point. Um, I think you could make an argument for the difference between the simple act of say um making you know in our case a lot of people are making paypal donations you could make an argument i'm not saying it's completely correct but you actually make the you actually do it yourself you say this money is going to this organization for to benefit the organization and you're doing it yourself as opposed to saying you know distribute my funds as you see fit and not actually ever making the decision See, because what we're talking about in the Payasi Sutta is he never actually said, give to this Brahmin, give to that Brahmin, give to this beggar, give to that beggar. He just said, you know, give, but you take care of the giving, and it's it's removed. It's a step removed, so you never actually have that moment of joy and confidence of giving. So I think you could argue that. But I think you could also argue that it's far better to be the one who actually uses money or funds to actually give something to someone that's a benefit because obviously putting money in a bank account isn't actually directly benefiting anyone i mean especially in our case because it's an organization it's it's the whole thing about this whole issue about money and in in buddhist societies giving money has become the standard way of giving and when you give money to a monk which is what often ends up happening you're not really doing the monk a great favor 
because now you're forcing the monk to take that money and go and buy things, which is actually breaking a second rule. They've broken a rule by accepting the money, and then they break a rule by going and buying something with it. So uh, contrast that with someone who takes money themselves, asks the monks, monk what they need, goes and buys it, and delivers it. It's um, It's on a whole other level. Like, for instance, a, an Amazon wish list is an interesting example. You're not actually delivering it, but you're making the decision and the purchase, and you're seeing, you're 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 overseeing the 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 giving. I mean, doesn't mean you have to be. Doesn't mean that the postal worker who delivers something, you know. I mean, I, I have an Amazon list, is why I mentioned this, and people always. I just today got got this mic, this mic that I'm using. <laughs> this mic came today, some kind soul. And I don't even think I know who it was. I don't. Because, here. Some kind soul ordered this, and some kind soul ordered something. Oh, I do know who it is. No. I think I know who it is. I've got a name anyway. Um, kind soul ordered this mic and had it sent. Doesn't mean that the post officer or, or the, the actually the man who ended up putting it in my hands today, the man who works here at the monastery, he was the one who put it in my hand. Doesn't mean he gets the best benefit. He wasn't actually giving it. The giving, I think, occurred, you would have to argue, occurred when the purchase was made by the person on the Amazon market. Nobody else was at, at all interested in in the giving. And ultimately it comes down to one's mind state. Not so much else is important. The, the whole, much of what the Buddha talks about Sapurisa is much more general and, and conventional. And none of it should be taken as um, ultimate reality or ultimate canonical truth. It's laying down a sense of propriety, like it's. Uh, uh, this is why I use the word gentleman because it's gentlemanly-like behavior. To and by gentlemanly, it means sophisticated, um, cultured. It's cultured behavior to give with one's own hand. A true, cultured, high individual, high class individual, if you want to say is someone who gives with their own hands. You know, most people who think of themselves as high class would never give with their own hands. They would always have someone else do it for them, or, you know, delegate. But a true high class individual is someone who, who does it themselves. So it's not so much about the level of, of um, interaction, you know, as it is about actually making the, the giving the decision to give and the act of of supporting oneself but there certainly is something to be said for directly giving something like food or clothing or shelter or medicines to people who need it giving directly is i think still to be preferred to so even supporting an organization which you know somewhat shooting you know our, our organization is right now um trying to make that work. I mean, it's, I don't think there's any reason to belittle a gift of money. But well, that makes sense. You're direct. You're directing it. You're directing it yourself to, yeah. you know, the, the wholesome endeavor. 
yeah no that that makes sense but I, I think you would have to argue that direct physical action of giving something is still going to have a more profound effect than um, and because it, you feel it when you're giving you know if you if you give food to a beggar or you give food put food in a monk's bowl i mean there's just so much more you know, joy there it's just that you know we can't all do that you can't build a monastery you know building a monastery by hand build us a monast build build a monastery for or build a meditation center you know if you build it by hand like they're doing here you know, people who come here on the weekends and not the people who give the money for the building materials, but the people who give their time and effort and physically build something. I mean, you've got you've to respect that, I think. So, I mean, obviously that we all agree that that would be preferable. Obviously, we can't do that. We're not going to build a monastery near McMaster University. We're not going to build a meditation center there has to be bought so it's removed already by its very nature um, but absolutely i think we would all get more more merit and good karma if we put our hearts into building a monastery on the other hand as with any gift and here's an interesting thing no matter how good we can talk about giving is the question is how much focus we should put on giving so yes we could build a monastery do we want to spend the next year even if we had all the time and resources and money, did we, do we want to put all our energy into building? Or do we want to say, well, you know, it's enough for us to do the money thing and the renting thing, or the buying thing or whatever, and focus our energies, focus our true heart and true effort on meditation practice. I think there's an argument to be made there that yes, definitely, be much better if everyone were to fly over here and and you know uh, make sure the meditators got food and and so on. But is it, it would be absurd and it would be a complete waste of your time and effort. You would be much better off, better served to make some contribution and then spend the rest of your time doing meditation. Right? I think there's a very strong argument for that. But certainly, giving, not thinking about the result, you have it here, words of the Buddha, not the highest form of giving. Altruism, in that sense, um, also not the highest form of giving. Giving should be, in a sense, selfish. You give to benefit yourself. Because truly benefiting yourself means making yourself a better person. And there's nothing selfish, self selfish in the in in yeah there's nothing selfish about that it's self-centered but it's centered on bettering you're making yourself a better person which is noble it's the most noble thing much more noble than than thinking may this person um, have a good meal you know if you're if your heart of heart intentions is just to provide someone with food that's good I mean, it would just be like you having the intention to provide yourself with food. But it's not a high noble intention. A much more noble intention is to think, this person needs this, um, but my gift is for the purpose of uh, doing the right thing, making myself a better person, 
supporting my freedom, you know, being an act of renunciation to make me more free. It's a much more ennobling thing, which is, I think, weird for Westerns to think to, to think about. But in Asia, that's really all the rage. Everyone is so keen on results, perhaps too keen. And if you become obsessed with results and greedy about res results, I think, do you get results? I think, yes, you do. I think even if you're, if you're giving and kind and generous thinking, may I benefit in the future because of this? Yes, I think you do benefit from it. Because it's hard to say that that's really greedy. You're doing a good deed. You're helping someone else. You're sacrificing. But it's it's defiled. So it leads to a benefit. But it probably leads to a worldly benefit. Many people seem, many Buddhists seem very much fixated on that. Anyway, talk and talk about dana. It's an interesting topic. But it's not really, it's not really the highest topic. So... We should spend some time now, even though we've spent an hour already, on questions, talking about Dhamma. Why is it possible to get freedom meditating in the body if it doesn't belong to us? Because you're not getting freedom. There's no us to get free. It's just interesting. I mean, it's hard to talk about, really. The problem with non-self is... We are accustomed to speaking in terms of billiard balls, like atoms, uh, things that are mm, impersonal. And I think you'd have to argue that reality is very personal. And, and that sounds like, you know, it's hard. you can't really say that because it's talking about the self again, but it's personal in that it's, it's first person in the sense of it's experienced, right? It's not it's not actually experienced, but it's experience. You see what I mean? It's it's not like a billiard ball. It's not like uh, atoms. It's not like the physical world that we've been taught so much as being the basis of reality. That is not it's not even really a true basis of reality because underlying the atoms are subatomic particles, underlying subatomic particles, we don't even know what it is. I mean I don't know. I don't think they know. It's it's not. I think well understood. No, they don't even. They don't know what is gravity. They don't know what is. Um, no, they don't. It's not well understood even matter. But point being, true reality isn't even like that. True reality is experience based, which is, for lack of a better word, personal. You know, it has some quality that is different from what we think in our minds of impersonal um, and it's still the language doesn't even allow because none of it's personal there's no person person is just a concept but somehow it is personal it's individual i don't have your thoughts you don't have my thoughts that's an important distinction you know there is something there so freedom occurs uh, but there is no person who is freed non-self is the reality and yet, it's very personal. Uh, so I think the point, the, 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 that sounds like weird and, and perhaps contradictory, but the point, the, it's only a problem when we get hung up on the idea of non-self. Non-self isn't a problem. It isn't hard to understand. Really, look at reality. You'll see it's non-self. It's not controllable. It's, it only 
shakes you when you then think, but what about myself, if there is no self? The Buddha never said there is no self. I've said this many times, and you know, people have, I've had a monk tell me how wrong I was for saying that, but find me a quote, and there is no quote where the Buddha said there is no self. Doesn't mean, and I've said this many times, doesn't mean that the Buddha believed in a self. He certainly didn't believe in a self. He just never said there is no self. Why? It's the wrong framing and they've given this argument before um, reality doesn't admit of a framework within a self within which a self could exist so to ask whether there is a self is already the wrong question it's like asking is there a cat in the box makes only makes sense when there is a box what if you don't have a box if I don't have a box uh, and you ask me, is there a cat in that box? I'd say, what box? You know, how can I even answer? I can't answer yes or no. So if you say, is there a self? It requires a framework within which a self could exist. Now, experience isn't that framework. And since reality is based on experience, QV, you know, there is no self. No, QV isn't the right word. What's the word? Ipso facto? I don't know what you say. Yeah, QV, isn't it? Uh, therefore, no self. Not QV, I don't think. Anyway, there is no... Not that there is no self. You see, again, I just did it. Um, therefore, uh, and the question doesn't hold. The point is, is there a self is not a proper question. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's dealing in... It's mixing reality ultimate reality with conventional reality it's like you can ask you look you talk about a room and you say is there anyone home right if you 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 look you open the door is there anyone home that that question doesn't make any sense in terms of ultimate reality so when you ask is there a self well a self isn't either a convention or um well, no, it is. I mean, you could say, is there a self? You could say, yes, there's myself and there's yourself. But when you ask the question, you're not asking in a conventional sense. You're asking about ultimate reality. No one asks saying, hey, is there a self in this house? You don't ask that, you know. Or how many selves are there at the school or in the office building? In New York, how many selves are there? Selves are there. You don't ask that. If you ask that, it's all you would mean is how many people are there so it's conventional language but when you ask is there a self you're asking about ultimate reality the problem is self being like person is a convention doesn't it doesn't isn't the right language so there is no self not that it's even incorrect it's just problematic as a statement it's not accurate it's not an accurate question or, or statement moreover and more important for you here, yeah, ipso facto, right? More important for you here um, is that it creates confusion. When you say there is no self, people immediately say, and the, these are the Buddha's words. He says they would, they would, they would be more confused, saying, "What happened to myself then? Well, if there is no self, what will become of myself? What is? Where did myself go?" What about myself? It makes it more confusing. So 
that's the point is you're confused stop being confused forget about that forget about this whole thing about there is no self there is a self non-self is best understood from a practical point of view you see things which things which you you we could if we want to take that out we could say things which are taken were in the past taken to be but it's not a problem we can say you either way things which were in the past taken to be self i.e controllable belonging to an individual etc turn out to be no such thing turn out to be uncontrollable turn out to be you know dependent on causes and conditions that are from multiple multiple sources and furthermore have no entity in and of themselves so aren't an entity that's another meaning of non-self having no core they have no core in and of themselves it means they arise and they they rise from nothing they cease into nothing seeing that seeing that to be the truth so you'll see it in meditation practice that's how you should understand non-self then you won't have such questions about you know if it if the body doesn't belong to us how is it possible to get freedom i mean it's an odd question and i think you've got several problems in this question first of all non-self has nothing to do with the body the body is not real it doesn't exist so on an ultimate level saying the body doesn't belong to us is conventional language and it doesn't have anything to do with the the um, process of attaining freedom which does have to do with ultimate reality the process of attaining freedom i guess you could also argue that that's still a concept but it's a name for a specific series or sequence of of, of rea real events that culminate in states of mind which are free from meaning have no uh, defilement in them and furthermore have no suffering a state of mind or a um, a experience of the mind that is free from suffering free from defilement that's what freedom means so you you really are you know it's very diff you know you've got big problems with that with your argument here with your question here because it assumes things that are not exactly correct you don't get freedom um and getting freedom isn't meditating is it doesn't have anything to do with dependency on the body um it's in 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 actual fact meditating on physical manifestations of the body that means bodily experience as non-self is very much what sets the mind free free from attachment to the body free from attachment to the body as being self or, or not the body but bodily experiences you know when you, when your stomach rises take the, the age-old meditation object the belly when your belly rises there is there is by default the, the the feeling that i am breathing when you watch it you feel yourself controlling conditioning and as a result suffering once you give that up you become free from the suffering that is caused i mean that's a very simple even worldly mundane example anyway how long would a course be 
your, the meditation course. Yeah, courses. I don't talk enough. I was thinking today I don't talk enough about courses. I talk all about how you should just be mindful now and, and worry only about the present. But it really, that belies the fact that intensive meditation is great. So come and do a meditation course here or somewhere else. Certainly you can't beat that. So meditation is momentary. It doesn't mean that one moment a day is sufficient. Certainly moments from the time you wake up until the time you sleep are far preferable. So dedicating your entire day to meditation is awesome. Problem is in daily life that becomes quite difficult. So coming to a meditation center uh, and dedicating yourself to the meditation practice is uh, is a, an awesome thing to do. Does anyone want to do it? Okay, How the question is, how long does it take? How long should I do it for? The Buddhists said as a minimum seven days to become an anagami. Now, you don't see that happening much. Um, but taking that as an example, or or even the maximum seven years that the Buddha gave. Now you could argue that that all has to do with being with the Buddha, and certainly that's a fair argument. But given everything we know about the Mahasi Sayada, makes an awesome argument somewhere. Again, I could probably find the quote, but he, he makes this awesome argument about how people say. The Dhamma is something that takes years, even lifetimes. It's not something you should consider to be possible uh, here and now. And they criticize, many people would criticize the courses that we do. There are traditions even today that criticize Mahasi Sayadaw courses, Goenka courses, as being intensive, but limited you know, in their just by their very length. And the argument is that the Dhamma takes years and it has to be accumulated naturally because those traditions have that sort of practice where they do things over the course of months or years. And they assume that becoming a Sotapanna is something that could potentially take you all your life. And Mahasi Sayada says that's a very dangerous view. And he says that sort of view is one that belittles the Buddha's teaching as being less incredible than it actually is he said the buddha's teaching is incredible and if someone puts it into practice and he gave this as anecdotal um, from his own experience and from what he had seen and from what he understood that one month was a good basis that within one month in modern times the average person can get a very good um basis in practice and that's very vague and general because we don't want to put people's hopes up and we don't want to be bragging or be insinuating anything about people's states of enlightenment but you can you can imply you can take from that what you will um you know we have to be generally vague i can't make a more bold statement than that because it's not proper for various reasons but people who think that it has to take years or lifetimes to become to to become enlightened are you know even even basic on a basic level to become a sotapanna are seem to be criticizing or or belittling the buddha's teaching it's really still an incredible teaching and the teaching is still here it's not like it's gone anywhere 
So with that sort of idea, we've always had the idea of having a 20-some day course. It used to be 26, which is more in line with what Mahasi Sayada was saying, but it's usually cut down to 18 or 21, 21, say, 21 days. Uh, and then there is a 10-day review of that. And from what I've seen, that those two courses together are, you know, really, really sufficient. You know, they're an awesome foundation, a very strong foundation. I mean, everyone is different, and not everyone is going to get the same thing out of them. But uh, far and you know. For the, the vast majority of people, that's going to be a good start. So if you can do that, that's awesome. Do a 21-day course and then do another 10-day course. Even a 21-day course for many people is uh, provides a great... Well, it provides profound realizations of some sort and different people different level of result but that being said there's no shame in doing a three-day course a seven-day course and we're open to any number of days of course so that should answer that question can you tell us what your monastic name means I could, but do we really want to waste all this time on these questions? Well, that last one was an important one. But Yutadamo means, let's make it brief, Yutadamo means one who has the Dhamma well organized, which I obviously don't. It could also mean, but it's not as likely, it could also mean one who is made up of Dhamma which is actually less ostentatious. It's what I prefer, but the grammar isn't as clear for that one. Could potentially mean that, but it's not a, as likely a con construct. Yutta Dhamma could mean one who is made. It would be more like Dhamma Yutta. If it was Dhamma Yutta, it would mean one who is connected with the Dhamma or one who is composed of Dhamma. But Yutta Dhamma, it's more like a compliment, I think. And most Thai Buddhist names are complementary. When I've ordained people, I've always chosen uh, existing monastic names, usually ones that were similar to the person's you know, non-poly name. And um, the last person I ordained, I named him Mogaraja. Does anyone remember Mogaraja? And I got in big trouble because Moga is a very is a bad word and so people people who knew this word thought it was um, not a very complimentary word and they didn't want to uh, they thought it would be embarrassing to bow down to someone you know they not exactly but they 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 told me that you know we bow down to this person so they should have a good name and it became a real issue for people and i had to write an article about why i was insisting on the name mogaraja it's an interesting name. Mogaraja is a very interesting name. And the person Mogaraja was an awesome disciple of the Buddha. He was one of the 80 great disciples of the Buddha. So it's a name worth passing on, even though Moga means useless. or So it literally means the, the useless king. 
but that's not at all what it means. It means the king who understood, the person who understood the uselessness of kingship, because Mogaraja was someone who did. I can't remember what exactly it was, but the story, the reason, the way he got his name was due to the realization of how useless kingship is. I think. Can you briefly explain merit and the transfer of merit? Briefly. Merit is goodness. The word merit is a problematic translation. Goodness is a better one. Preferred, but I prefer goodness. Uh, so goodness is doing good things, having good having a good mind state and acting upon it, or not even acting upon it. Um, transferring goodness is dedicating it to others. When you dedicate it to others, it makes them feel good. It's a way of sending love to them. And so they can receive the vibes, the good vibes you send. They can also, if they hear about your dedication, they can they can express their appreciation. And as a result, they benefit from their own goodness, the goodness of appreciating your good deed and feeling good about the fact that you've dedicated goodness to them. Next. Any views on the Buddhist Pure Lands? No, I don't think it plays any part in our tradition. That's all I'd say. Is observing the monastic precepts inappropriate or detrimental for a lay Buddhist? Hmm. No, go for it, absolutely. If you can, do it. No need to wait to become a monk. I had the same question when I was starting, and I kept the eight precepts. Eventually, I gave them up because that was the advice I'd given, I was given. So power to the people who gave me that advice. But personally, personally, I think it was great what I did. I mean, it was difficult as a layperson, but I don't regret it. And I think it was, I ended up, actually, I ended up later keeping them and keeping the eight precepts again like you're not talking about actually you're not so wait okay wait you're not talking about monastic precepts and i do have to specify here you're talking about the eight precepts which are perfectly there's canonical references to people who kept the eight precepts dhammika i think was one um there were several lay disciples who kept eight precepts wore white all the time i mean that wasn't such a big deal in india at the time wouldn't have been completely white considering how dirty it gets but um undyed cloth undyed cotton they would wear uh it's a big it's a thing and that's only eight precepts now i would caution against keeping some trying to keep all of the monastic precepts because some of them are specifically designed with monastic life uh, keeping in mind monastic life. So one of them, if you're keeping monastic precepts, you can't take food for yourself. You can't store food for yourself. You can't touch money. Uh, these sorts of things, problematic. Now, okay, you could maybe say, I can go without money. Difficult, but harder to go without you know, taking food for yourself, storing food for yourself. And there's, there's more with that. I mean, there's lots of etiquette things that have specifically to do with being a monastic that, you know, when I, anecdote, 
when I, when I went to Thailand the second time, it was with the intention of becoming a monk temporarily because I knew that I wouldn't be given, my parents weren't going to go for me ordaining um, full time, you know, for real. So I was going to do this temporary Thai ordination for a couple of months. Um, didn't work out. I ended up spending seven days in a mental hospital with a crazy woman instead. Well, that's a story. Uh, no, I spent four nights. She spent seven nights. I only spent the first four with her and, and her teacher, um, who also wasn't really responsible for driving her crazy. It's a really interesting story. But um, and but then the, that that experience, and my teacher was a layman, and he was looking after all the foreign meditators. I ended up, anyway. I ended up not ordaining. It's not even the point. The point. I no. It is kind of the point. So um, I was so set, so set on ordaining. It was just like I'm going to become a monk because it was. It just just become such an awesome thing. Reading about the monks' roles, I had actually started keeping them like not lighting fires, um, things like that. Like I just wanted to keep as many of the monks' roles. But can I do this one? I would look through the monks' roles and say, okay, I can keep this one, and so I would keep it. And uh, it culminated in this this final um, giving it up because they needed someone, uh, a layperson. I mean, this was the idea at the time. It was actually kind of, I think, fallacious reasoning that uh, there were things I couldn't do as a monk. And so, um, it's true, actually. There are things that a monk isn't capable of doing but you know you can work around it anyway i thought i won't i won't ordain because then if i ordain i won't be able to do the things i mean this was their reasoning that monks aren't able to to teach as as efficiently as lay people now that's a whole other argument that i totally don't agree with anyway um but it was upsetting to not be able to ordain so the first thing i did upon making this decision to cancel my plans for ordination was to go into the town and buy a stainless steel bowl and begin to eat all of my food out of this stainless steel bowl. I said, if I'm not going to ordain, I'm going to pretend and I'm going to live my life as a fake monk. You know, and, and I really meant that in the, in the best of possible ways, in the sense that do the best I can, you know, mimic the monastic life as best as I could. And I think that's awesome. I still think that that was kind of a great thing to be able to do. And, and, and it was, you know, you know, it felt it was encouraging to do. So I definitely recommend that sort of thing. No, no harm in it. There's some harm in trying to like not light fires, for example, because not cook food. Monks can't cook food, so you couldn't light a cook fire. That kind of thing. So yeah, if you're if you're keeping the rules about not cooking and so on and so on, there's lots and lots of them. It gets more and more problematic. Okay, next question. There's a quick question on we strive to observe the monastic precepts on upasata days, correct? No. But I'm sure they mean the the eight precepts. Yeah, those are not monastic precepts. Those are. The those are clearly and categorically lay precepts. 
Um, interestingly enough, monastics don't have the eight precepts. Monks don't have the eight precepts. Um, there is no rule in the Patimokkha against entertainment or beautification. I think I don't think you can find anything. I mean, you can probably argue one of the rules, but those rules are only outside of the Patimokkha. I mean, they're there. They're in the Vinaya. But it's interesting that there is no specific rule for either of those. There's a rule. There's also no rule against the eighth pre precept, lying and sleeping on, or, you know, using high bedding. In fact, high bedding is, is specifically allowed for monks, provided they haven't made it for themselves. So it's interesting to, to note, and it kind of puts the eight precepts in, well, in some perspective, I suppose, especially the eighth one, where it's interesting that the problem is, it's an interesting one because um, monks do, are allowed to sleep on as high a bed as they want, as long as they didn't make it. I, mean, it's, I guess you could say it's kind of a loophole. Another, it also helps you look at the monastic rules as n still with their vast number, still not being enough, you know, still not being a comprehensive, um, not even necessarily a very accurate um, assessment of, of the actual practice. Many of them are just for practical purposes. Like touching a man, a, a, a male monk touches a male sexually. You know, um, it could even be on on his sexual organ. Uh, doesn't break a rule. If breaks a rule, breaks a very very small rule. But I think doesn't even break a rule, because practically speaking, touching another monk, um, touching an, a monk of the same gender, can be a very necessary thing to do. Suppose you're a doctor or a monk, no, not a doctor, but a monk who's looking after another monk. And then as you touch the monk, even if you're not homosexual, or if you are, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to be homosexual to have sexual thoughts arise, you know, just because you're not enlightened yet. And so to make a rule against it is problematic, to make it a serious rule. No, they would never want to touch each other because they'd say, well, you know, what if sexual thoughts arise? So... Um, it's interesting to look at the contrast. The eight precepts are clearly a core set of practical precepts. They have nothing to do with fitting into a community, not especially. The monastic rules are designed and balanced more, or, or at least keeping in mind the benefit to the community. So you have to weigh the benefit to the individual against the benefit of the community. So it's a whole different weighing system. Right, I mean, obviously the the sixth or the let's see, the sixth precept is there. The seventh, the seventh and the eighth precepts are not even don't even figure into the patimokkha. The eighth is specifically not against the rules, and you could argue the reason being monks sometimes can't choose. You know, they can't say what bedding they're going to sleep on. Sometimes the only bedding that they're given is high bedding. So a monk is in a different position from a layperson. That's, I think, one good example of how that's true. And so the monastic precepts are not always a good guide for laypeople. They may actually, in certain small instances, be less valuable.
than the non-monastic precepts. Interesting, huh? Mm. The the five and the eight precepts are linked in the chat there for anyone who wanted to just distinguish between those two. Okay. And I think this question, I think we kind of answered it. It sounds a lot like um, what we were talking about before. Giving even if automated or done from a distance should be held in awareness. So I, I think that's kind of what we were talking about. I think we should stop there. It's been an hour and a half. Come yeah. back again tomorrow if you have more questions. If some, if you have a question that you've asked here and hasn't been answered, apologies, but there's only so much we can do. So come back again tomorrow. Thank you. Good questions. Good, good debate. And um, look forward to more news about this monastery project. Oh, it's too late. It's 10.30. I was going to call them tonight. Shoot! I told them we give them an answer tonight. I was going to. Can do you that send before. them a? Can you send them a text or an email? Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll send them a text and an email. Yeah. We should. We have to talk though. Okay, let's get off here. Okay. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night.